put these own cages around ourselves. It's amazing how we do this. And it isn't until you become aware of the cages that you can walk out of the cage. You don't realize you're in the cage. And so for me, you know, that conversation with Mike was the beginning of realizing, wow, man, I put myself in this mental cage. And then one day, and I don't know when it happened, is I decided to transcend race. And I just don't look at it anymore. Don't want to talk about it. Don't care about it. Don't, I mean, I just don't care, you know? And so I think that was the beginning of my stepping out of that one cage that, wow. that put everybody else in a box. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Caged Vision Podcast. We have an extremely special guest today, Victor Antonio. He's a sales guru. He's grew up from very, hum well, it's not even humble beginnings, it's poor beginnings. We're gonna get into that. <laughs> Somehow found his way to get a, a degree in engineering, an MBA, and is now, speaks around the world, teaching sales. He's got a, an amazing business. He shared the stage with some of the top names in the world. Victor, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. Man, Kerry, glad to be here, man. Thank you for having me. All right, let's get into it. So I like to start with something a little bit silly. Uh, steak or fish? Steak. All right. Beach or mountains? I'm going to go with mountains. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got some good ones right north of you, right? Yep. Uh, east or west coast? Oh, uh, east coast. East coast. Is that yeah, they're you know, East Coast people are just grittier, man. I just like them because they're <laughs> to the point, man. I, I like down and dirty gritty, man. So I, I dig them. I like the West Coast. So, you know, shout out yeah. to the West Coast. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Okay. So I want to go back and I, and I call it the Wayback Machine. I love to start with, uh, I call it the Wayback Machine. You start, you grew up poor. Yep. Tell me about, because people, a lot of people say I grew up in humble beginnings or I grew, tell me about, what poor meant uh, for us? Well, my family came from Puerto Rico uh, in the late fifties. My mother had, I think a third grade education. My father had a fifth grade education or vice versa, one or two, but anyway, they never made it past eighth grade. And so, you know, they moved to Chicago. They didn't know the language obviously. And so we were raised near somewhere between Humble Park and the Cabrini Green housing projects we were. And so it was literally food stamps, government cheese, powdered milk, that type of thing. Mm. Uh, a lot of gang, a lot of violence. Uh, it was a different time back in the, in the, sixties uh, and seventies. And, you know, mom was always like, go to school, get the education, get the job if you want to live the American dream, man. So, uh, that's what I did, man. Uh, my primary motivator was I didn't want to be broke. Uh, I was afraid to go to work at the factories with my father and mom said, go to school, man, get the education get that white collar job. And so that's what I did, man. So I'm that guy that every time I traveled the world, I come back to the U S I'm kissing dirt, if you know what I mean, man. Yeah. You know, I think this is the greatest country in the world, man. Uh, you know, I'm forever grateful. Yeah. So you're, 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 you grew up poor. You grew up really, really poor. Your, your family worked hard, I'm certain, to, to provide for you. Was there, was there a point where um, you – did you ever resent the way you grew up? You know, it's like when you're in it, you don't know you're in it. Yeah. That's what's interesting, you know? I mean, when you're poor, I mean, you kind of you have an idea that you don't have money, right? Certain yeah. things you can't do. Uh, I remember the, <laughs> okay, silly moments when you know you're poor, right? I should do a whole series. When you, <laughs> you know you're poor, when? Uh, you and Jeff Foxworthy, I, right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. And so I love Foxworthy. And so, you know, I remember I wanted to play baseball, right? And we just couldn't. 
my family couldn't afford a car, so nobody drove in the family. So, you know, my, my father, when he worked, went to work, was always on the bus on the CTA, Chicago Transit Authority. And I remember I wanted to play baseball, but one, nobody could take me to the baseball games. Two, we couldn't afford the uniforms. Mm. That's when you know you're poor. I remember I wanted to join the Boy Scouts when I was a little kid, but again, nobody had a car and didn't have the money to even buy the uniforms. And so there, there are moments where you go, I think we're poor. You know what I mean? But it's, yeah. uh, it, but, but it doesn't take away from the fact that once you're in it, you know, uh, I had hardworking parents, Matt. And so it, it wasn't as, I'm not going to say it was great, but it wasn't bad. Again, when you don't know you're poor, it just doesn't feel that bad. Yeah, but you, when was the moment where you said, I'm not doing this. I am not going to live this life. You had to make a promise to yourself at some point, yeah. right? Yeah, people ask me that, Kerry, you know, and I think, you know, too often people reinvent history, if you know what I mean. When they think back, they romanticize a little too much. To me, I believe in something called, I think it's called phyletic gradualism, something that comes, you know, just gradually happens. And I think what happened was I was the youngest of seven. And uh, nobody had gone to a four-year college, right? And so my father was like, uh, if, well, my mother was like, if you don't go to school, go to college, you have to go work with your father at the factory. Now, the reason I did well in high school was because I was afraid of my mother, you know, you know spanking me. Yeah. True story. Yeah. And so, and so when I graduated from high school, I said, maybe I'll take some time off. She goes, nope, you're going straight to work with your father in the factory. My brother had done it. I hated it. And so I said, well, I guess I'm going to school. I'm going to college, right? And so it was almost like an escape. There, you know, for me, the moment, you know, I, I, I always call it the shattering. The shattering for me was, Carrie, when I went to college. So you got to understand. So I'm raised in a predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhood, right? Yeah. I mean, if you see a white person in our neighborhood that was like spotting a white owl, something rare, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and so when I get to college now, well, guess what? Now you have everything, right? Yeah. You have everything from people from the Middle East. Caucasians all over the place. You got Asians. You got all kinds of folks from Latin America. Got to remind people, not all Spanish people are the same, right? right. Different folks from Latin America. And I remember feeling like I, I was having like cultural vertigo. Mm -hmm. And I remember, and this is, I'm almost embarrassed to tell the story, but really the story is real. I had a friend named Mike. Mike was white. And one day I'm like, Mike was telling me how poor he was. And I said, but Mike, you're white. How can you be poor? You're white, right? Because in my neighborhood, Gary, that's what you were taught, right? Yeah. Uh, white people have it all. Us minorities have nothing, right? That whole thing. That's, that, that was your belief system at the time. And well, Mike, Mike looked at me like I was an idiot. Like, what, what do you mean? I'm poor because I'm, I'm, you know, I should be rich because I'm white. Is that your theory here? Right there? And he laughed, you know? And as stupid as that story sounds, that was like the beginning. The moment somebody like tapped the, the ball ping hammer on the glass and it started cracking. Because then you start questioning all your belief systems what you've been told up to that point. And to me, you know, college was the biggest cultural shock. And then I realized, you know, somewhere in college, I realized, you know, we're all just in this race together. You know what I mean? I it's like you transcend, you know, like race, everything else, all the stupidity, you know? I mean, if I, if I could be president and I had one wish, I swear to you, Carrie, I would get rid of all the boxes. You know, the box that says, check what race you are. Oh, yeah. You know, that whole thing. I would say, are you American or not? It would be, those would be my two boxes right there. Well, I, w I would love to have, uh, you know, that you, you don't even put a name. You don't even put a name when you interview. I'd love to have blind interviews. Mm. I wanna, I wanna, I, you don't need any of that bias. I just want to know. I want to I hear yeah. somebody's voice. I want to know that they care 
and then and then I don't want to see them until afterwards. I mean, I think that would be really cool. But starting with uh, leaving the boxes off the farm is yeah. Well, what I think is fascinating, Carrie. You know, just as a you know an, an asterisk footnote to this whole story is that you know I'm going to use some of your words here about cages, right? Yeah. Is that we put these own cages around ourselves. It's amazing how we do this. And it isn't until you become aware of the cages that you can walk out of the cage. You don't realize you're in the cage. And so for me, you know, that conversation with Mike was the beginning of realize, wow, man, I put myself in this mental cage. And then one day, and I don't know when it happened, it's like, I, and the word I use is transcend, is I decided to transcend race. And I just don't look at it anymore, don't want to talk about it, don't care about it, don't, I mean, I just don't care. You know, and so I think that was the beginning of my stepping out of that one cage that, oh, that put everybody else in a box. That is so good. You know, the re you, meant, you referenced the podcast name, The Caged Vision. I was reading a book and it's, it referenced something about an executive was frustrated because his vision was caged. And I thought, oh <laughs> my gosh, there it is, caged vision. How frustrating is it when you've got a vision for something more? but you're just trapped in it. You're just but trapped. the thing is, you're the key holder. That's, that's the interesting yeah, part. I know, I know. You know yeah, it's, it's the interesting part how, you know, and so I still go back to the hood, right? And so I've seen it all, you know. Uh, I'm the guy you can't tell stories to. I've seen people killed. I've seen people go to prison. I've seen stuff you don't want to see. And so it's always interesting when I hear people complain about you know, because I, I truly, like, love this country. You know what I mean? Like, you know, red, white, and blue, that whole thing, right? Because I've been around the world, literally been around the world. I've seen other things. And I'm saying, we have issues, but, man, I wouldn't trade my issues for anybody else's issues, you know? And when you come from that sense of appreciation, it's amazing how freeing that is when you stop blaming other people for what you can't have. Oh, that is so, so good. So... Tell me about, I think it's right about the moment, that shattering moment that you referenced. Is that, is that when you started to frame up a vision for your life, something bigger where you said, you know what, I'm the only one holding myself back? You know, I didn't, I, I, I just didn't go that deep, man. My, my pool was very shallow. My mental pool was very shallow. Uh, because what happened to me, again, was this, this gradualism thing. And what happened was, okay, now I'm seeing things for what they are, right? And then you, you start seeing social proof. You start seeing, for example, you start seeing other successful Hispanics, right? Mm. And you start just seeing other things. And to me, what drives me is always social proof. That if you ever have a doubt of whether you can do something, just ask yourself, is somebody else doing it? And if they are, then guess what? You probably could do it too. Yeah. And so to me, the, so that was step one was the, uh, let's just say the beginning of the shattering, right? The awakening. Mm -hmm. And then I get to corporate America. And now I graduated and I, and I fought my way, Carrie, you don't understand my man. I fought my way. I went to a Chicago public school and you don't realize how handicapped you are until you go to college and compete with, with kids who went to a private school or a Catholic school. And so I had to drop out uh, halfway through the first year. I had to drop out and then sign up again and take pre pre-college courses because I couldn't keep up. But it was like, I, you know how you got, it's that whole Hernan Cortez burned the boats. Yes. You got to burn the boats. So I had that mindset, right? Because I, I, there was no alternative. I didn't want to go back to factories. I didn't want to do that. And so I pushed myself, pushed myself, graduate. I mean, I called my way through my engineering degree. 
you know, some people go, yeah, it was easy. No, I, I clawed and cried my way through it. And then I graduated, got my first job, started making a little money. And that was when I said, okay, how do I do this? And so I'm giving you some real insight here. That I rarely share this, but true story. I said, I don't fit in. I moved to Minnesota, by the way. Now, you can't get more Caucasian and Anglo than that, okay? <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, for sure, you betcha, right? Love yeah, Minnesota, yeah, by the way. Yeah. And so I'm up there, and I'm like, I'm like the only Hispanic Puerto Rican in the, the whole organization, right? I mean, you just don't see that many brown faces up there. And that, yep. But that, that's not a criticism. It's just a fact. Was, and it, so, was it an engineering job you were in? Yes, I was working okay. for Honeywell. I started working out with their, uh, I started working as an intern in their undersea systems division on their torpedo system, the Mach 50. Hmm. And then when I graduated, I went to what they call their electronic test center. And the electronic test centers where we tested all the components that go into all the munitions that the military uses. Uh, so very important job because last thing you want is a discrete capacitor to go, you know, AWOL on you type right, of thing. Right. And so then something hit me. It's like, you know how you just don't, you ever, you ever go to a, a gathering and you feel like you, you're just the one that doesn't fit in. Yeah. You know, you say something and eh, it doesn't fit in. Yeah. And then at that, there was another moment I could have just retreated. Right. And I could have said, yeah, they just don't get me. I could have said that. But then this idea crossed my mind. I was in my manager's office and he was reading this book called Good to Great, mm. right? Good to Great. Mm. And I think it's Collins' last name or something. Yeah. And I think that was the book. And so I said, hmm, maybe I'll read that book. And from that moment on, believe it or not, I started reading what everybody else around me was reading. So one of the things I would do is I, when I go into somebody's office or talk to them, I would find the book they were reading. I'd look for a book mm. and then I'd go buy the book. You know, and so I'd go buy the book, read the book, and then something interesting began to happen. I could have conversation with people, and all of a sudden, it started elevating my way of thinking. See, it wasn't about them. It was the fact that I had to elevate my thinking along their lines, almost like you have to sync up with somebody, right? Yeah. And, and, that, and over time, it just happens, man. You start reading a lot, and it just expands your mind. And so all of a sudden, I'm, I'm a heavy reader. You know, at least two to three books, maybe four a month, right? I'm constantly yeah. reading. Yeah. yeah. And so I have that hasn't that, that habit hasn't left me. But reading was that one thing that, you know, brought me closer to other people. It didn't matter who they were. It just brought me closer. And if I can give you the next step in the evolution was I joined another company after that. And it was like, I was always like the odd man out. Mm. And then I go, hmm, you know, and, and again, I refuse to accept that it was I was the only brown guy on the block. You know what I mean? I refuse to accept that that is the reason why. And then I said, well, what do these guys do? And it was hunting, fishing, and golfing. Right. Well, man, the first two were definitely out, man. Yeah. You know, and so I said, let me go take some golf lessons. So I literally bought some sticks, man, took some golf lessons for about two, three months. And then little by little, I let people know I play golf. Well, it wasn't the best, but I can, you know, come off the tee nicely. You know, uh, I can drive for show, but I couldn't putt for the dough, if you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, and yeah. So, and so... So all of a sudden, next thing you know, I'm getting invited to go out golfing with these guys. Further proof. Had nothing to do with, you know, who I was. Had everything to do with what we had in common. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is, is part of the awakening. See how gradual that is? And there's more examples of that. But I refuse to say, you know, I, I refuse to kind of, like, have that defeatist attitude. Like, well, they just don't like me. Screw them. You know? Mm -hmm. I was like, well, what is it that they do? What is it that they like? I mean... 
And so that allowed me to really sync up with people. And it's, by the way, it served me well in business. Well, it's so interesting, your journey, because you said that, you know, you, you, you left the projects and when you went to school, you went to college and you made the statement to your friend, Mike, you made the statement that, you know, you're white, so you should be rich. It's mm-hmm. almost as if that, you know, that, that constant theme that I'm, is that you were, you were running up against, I don't fit in here. Right. And, and in, the, in your first job, I don't fit in here. In your second job, I don't fit in here. But what you did, I want to make sure that the listeners hear this. What you did is you looked for what you had in common. Correct. And you invested what in it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You, took, you, you owned it. You know why? It's, it's too easy to say they don't get me. It is. It's, it's too easy. It's yeah. too easy. I mean, I live in Georgia right now. I mean, hell, I'll go to LJ right now, you know, backwood, you know what I mean by backwood, right? Yeah. And I'm telling you, I'll strike up a conversation with any hillbilly up there and we'll get along, you know, because I realize that people are people, that type of thing. I know that sounds trite, almost cliche, but it really is. And people go say, and I'm always asked by my minority friends, and I hate to use the word minority, but I'm just throwing it out there. And they're like, well, are you telling me, Victor, there are no racists? I said, man, there's racists on every side. I said, look, I said, are there a few racist white people? I said, absolutely. Are there a few racist Hispanic people? I said, oh, hell yes, absolutely. Black people, oh, absolutely. These are called stupid people, yeah. right? And that's what they have in common. They're stupid. And so when I, when I say stuff like that, I'm, what I'm saying is that, but the majority of people are good people. Yeah. And that's why I, I choose to focus on the 80%. You can keep your 20%. It's too easy to focus on the 20 and blame somebody else for what you don't have or do have. Oh, yeah. And like I said, hey, we live in a great country, man. Opportunities are everywhere. Oh, yeah. So good. And, and, you've, and you've really, um, you can see that, that you've done that. You've done that. You've invested in people that are positive, not people that are negative. There are people that just want to stew in negativity. And that's a choice. But there's people who want to just, yeah, there's people who want, there's people who, believe it or not, like their cage. They oh, like yeah. their cage, they man. Like the victim thing. Yeah, they like their cage. Stop messing with it. You open the door. Hey, shut that door. Who told you to open that? You know what I mean? Mentally, that's what they're doing. Okay, I and, got a question for you because when, and I want to make sure that um, the listeners hear this because I've referenced it before and I want to make sure, I want to see if your experience is similar. Uh, also in sort of a cage, you can rep, you can think of that. Uh, uh, people want to put you into a certain uh, box. They want to fit you into a box. And as sure. soon as you start to stretch and to move outside of that comfort zone where they, they think you need to be, not where you believe you need to be, where mm-hmm. they think you need to be, you'll start to get criticism. Talk to me about when you started to stretch and do things a little differently. About oh, company. man. Okay. So you, okay. We're, we're going hard here. Are yeah. we? We're going to go hard here. All right. Let's go. So this is, this, is, this, is, this is the moment. I, I can still see it in my head. So uh, I'm in Minnesota. Uh, go to a family party, right? A little family gathering. Good salsa music in the background, that whole bit. Great food. And I remember uh, I was talking to somebody. And you're a little, you know how you just kind of go off in a little group here. You start talking to your cousins and everything else. Yeah. And my cousin looks at me. Big tough guy, man. Big dude, right? He says, man, he says, you know what's wrong with you? I said, what do you mean what's wrong with me? He says, yeah, man, you know what's wrong with you? I go, apparently I don't know what's wrong with me. He says, you sound white. Uh, I said, what? He said, he says, man, look at the way you talk. You sound white. And I said, I said, thank you, man. I appreciate that. And I locked him up. He didn't know what to say with that one. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. 
that was a moment that I know what he was saying. I know what he was saying. He says, you know, stop using proper diction. You're starting to sound like them. That's it. That was the interpretation there. You know, and I was like, and, and by the way, I know a lot of friends, a lot of friends who are educated who've been told the same thing, you know, and it, that was a moment for me because that reminded me of the, uh, what's that, what's that crab analogy they always use? If you put one crab in a bucket, it'll crawl out. But if you put a bunch of crabs in a bucket, none will crawl out because they all pull each other down when somebody tries to get out, right? Oh, well, yeah. And, and that's what that reminded me of. He's like, you know, you're trying to be like them. And I wasn't trying to be like anybody. I just realized that unless you have proper diction, you're well-read, it's hard to get ahead. Mm. I tell this to all my friends. I said, the key to success is communication. Your ability to communicate your message, articulate a point, is what will get you out of any hole and will get you the promotions you want if you're in the company or will allow you to sell more effectively if you're selling a product and you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, so good. And it's that... It's, you know, you reference is the people that you surround yourself with when you, it's, you know, someone's insecurity, they will, they will try to force on you and make you believe that you're the one that's doing things wrong. You're, 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 you're not being who you are when who yeah. you are is the best thing you can do for yourself is to invest in what you want to be, not who you are today, but who you want to be tomorrow. I think, I think if you listen, and I agree with you 100%, Carrie. I think if you listen to people's language, I mean, just really listen to people's language, it'll tell you right away if you want to hang out with them or not. Yeah. If they're always negative, if they're always criticizing, if they're always blaming somebody else, that's one conversation. I like conversations where people tell me, hey, man, I tried this marketing strategy. That didn't work. Lost a lot of money on the damn thing. You know, now I got to kind of go, you know, work, work hard to save money and do it again. Those are my conversations, right? Like, oh man, I feel your pain on that one because that's a person who's trying to move ahead. Mm -hmm. It's too easy to be on the negative side, always criticizing people, blaming somebody else. And we see a lot of that. And too often, sad to say, that many people in our own families are the ones that hold us back. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? They, 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 they say things and sometimes it's not direct. It's the innuendos or the indirect statements, the inferences. Uh, I remember my aunt when I was going to college, my aunt, for God's sakes, told my mother, why is he even trying to go to college and get an engineering degree? Doesn't he know any better? Oh, wow. What? My mother told me that. It just fueled me, man. Yeah. You can just feel me heaving coal into that, you know, into <laughs> that fire, man. You can just feel me. I was like, what? And so when I graduated, man, I made sure everybody knew I graduated. And it, it's that mindset. And I think it's sad because, you know, you see, you know, I hear some of these radio shows and there's this negative conditioning, right? This blaming the other person, this blaming society, you know, blaming the politicians, you know, blaming the political structure. You know, everybody's got somebody to blame. And I get that. But at the end of the day, here's what I tell people. Only focus on what you can control. And there's only two things I can control, Carrie. I can't control the economy. I can't control politics. I can't control regulations. I can't control taxes. But I can control how much more money I make and how to reduce my tax base. Mm -hmm. So if I can make more money and reduce my tax base, that's what I'm focused in on. Everything else is going to happen. Our job is to adapt to that dynamic. You are correct. Okay, so you've worked with a lot of... Of, of leaders across the world 
what is the one thing that you think separates someone that has just an idea from a business leader with a vision that sees it through? I, I think what I'm saying is, you know, and I'm, I'm, as you're asking the question, I'm reflecting, you know, you're, I'm digging into my mental database. And one, I think there's this humility that people have. And I respect it a lot because that humility comes in the form of, I'm just going to grind it out quietly. I don't need to tell people what I'm doing. I'm just going to go do it. And I, and I love that. You know, when you're, the less somebody brags about something, the more I'm intrigued by them. Like, wait, why aren't you saying more? You know, and it's not that they're hiding anything. It's just that they don't believe that they have to kind of create all this bluster around them, right? To get the attention. They just constantly, man, it is consistency, man. That's what it is, Carrie. It is being consistent. Uh, I get the question all the time. So, Victor, I want to be a speaker just like you. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to travel around the world. Uh, I want people to know who I am. How do I do it? And I said, well, do what I did. You know, like in 2008, I read Gary V's book, Gary Vaynerchuk's book, Crush It, yeah, right? Yeah. And it was all about video, 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 video. And after reading that book, I'm, I mean, I pushed all my chips in on video. And I just started creating videos. And so today I have like, a, I think, 1,200 videos online. And I tell people, that's commitment. I've been doing that for now 11 years now. Yeah. And I'm putting out three pieces of content every week. It is that consistency. You know, what's that guy, Ander Erickson, who came up with the, it's either 10,000 hours or 10 years of sweat. Take your right, pick. Right, right. And so that's the mindset I think a lot of these leaders have. They believe in, you know, lead by example. That's the basic. But I think it's the things they do quietly and consistently when nobody's looking that gets them ahead. Yeah, yeah. That is so good, that consistency. And, and it's that... Um, that constant churn because they believe down deep in what they're doing. And because if you're going to do it for 10 years, if you're going to do it for 10,000 hours, mm -hmm. you had better believe in it because it's hard work. It's hard. And you know, I want, I want, if you're listening to this, uh, listening to this podcast, you know, and you're thinking, well, that's easy to say, uh, you know, and easy to do. No, it isn't. There's so many times I had to be my own psychologist and therapist. You know what I mean by that? It's like you got to kind of like motivate yourself because you don't want to do certain things. You can come up with reasons why you don't want to record a video this week, reasons why you don't want to get up and do a podcast. There's so many reasons, but it's almost like it's that person that can talk themselves out of it and just keep thinking long term. Got to do it, man. We got the plant. Let's keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a routine and every morning that's part, part of my routine is going through um, a series of exercises to make sure that I'm ready for the day because I know the day is going to be hard and I know I'm not going to want to do some things. <clears throat> We're all like that. And, and the better you, you know, to thy own self be true, right? Yeah. The famous, I think, Shakespeare line. And I think that's important. When you know yourself, you know what you're good at, not good at, when you can perform, when you can't, then you begin to schedule around that. And like you, Carrie, I have a schedule. I get up at 530 in the morning. Uh, I'm just an early bird. I've always been that way. But by 10 o'clock, man, don't talk to me. I'm, I'm in a coma. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I only have so many hours to run. And so from 5.30 to 7.30, you know, I try to get as much reading done as I can or I call mental work because the rest of the day I know I can't. Right. And there's a neuroscientist by the name of Dan Ariely who wrote the book uh, Predictably Irrational, I think it's the book. And he said, everybody here has two golden hours where they're so focused that they can get stuff done. And so my two golden hours are 5.30 to 7.30. Yeah. 
And so I always challenge people, find your two golden hours. And then the toughest task you have to perform that day, that's when you do it. Mm, that is so good. Okay, tell me the story because I, I, I did a little background uh, and watched some of your mm. videos. Tell the story about your first big opportunity. Oh, first big opportunity in corporate America or outside of corporate America speaking, which one do you want? Uh, it was a corporate America. You went down to, to um, South America and you had. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There. That's the one. That's the one. I thought, I, I thought that's why you were referring to. Yeah. Uh, and so my, my boss, a good Minnesotan by the name of Lynn, said, Victor, I'm tapping, you know, basically tapping on a show that's going to make you vice president of all of Latin America. And he said, you have to live in the region. And so we got the option of Mexico, Venezuela, or Argentina. I wanted Puerto Rico, of course, but he said, no, in the region, like really get in the region. He wanted me to marinate with the people because yeah. I'd never lived outside the U.S. And so uh, I decided to move down to Argentina. We chose Argentina as our base. And so we were selling at the time, the company was selling at the time. The most they had ever sold in Latin America is 14 million. And so he told me, Victor, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't sell less than 14 million. <laughs> It'll make me look bad, right? No pressure. Yeah. And to make a long story short, oh, I should note, footnote, our products were typically 30% higher than our competitors. So we were more expensive. And in two and a half years, we went from 14 to $98 million a year in annual revenue. You know, and that was, to me was, you know, the biggest opportunity, biggest turning point to manage and lead other people. And still one of my biggest, my proudest moments in corporate America, that is my proudest moment in corporate America. I love that story, but tell, tell them, tell, talk, talk about the part when you said, uh, I could sell more if we reduce the price. Oh, man. Okay. So yeah, you do know the story. And so, so after three months in the region, Lynn calls me back up to his office. That type of guy likes to look you in the eye, in the eye when you want, you know, again, when he wants to talk to you. Yeah. So I remember flying back to Minnesota and, you know, I walk in, I remember Ruth, uh, secretary walks me in, Lynn's ready for you. And so, you know, we exchanged pleasantries. <clears throat> and then he, he, he said, Victor, what can I do to support you so you can hit your number, so you can make your number? What can I do to support you so you can hit your number, right? And without thinking, without hesitation, I said, Lynn, if I had better pricing, I know I can sell more than $14 million. And then he just stared at me. Just stared. And my, my amygdala, my reptilian brain is going, uh-oh, something's <laughs> not right. Something's not right. He said, Victor, let me ask you a question. I always tell people, when somebody starts out with, let me ask you a question, know that it's not going to go your way. Yeah, you're, he, you're said, yeah, he said, let me ask you a question. To which I said, what? I'm not afraid of people. I said, what? He said, if the only way to grow the region, to get past 14 million is to lower our price, he says, why don't I do this? Why don't I fire you? Your whole sales team close out all the offices and just send the customer a brochure with a small discount. What do you think of that idea? And man, I looked him dead in the eye. I said, man, I don't know who brought this pricing thing up, but I suggest <laughs> we move on to another topic. You know, and it was like, that was a moment for me. Because yeah. he's like, dude, we're not discounting. We didn't, we didn't hire you to go around discounting everything. And by the way, true story, side note, there was a guy by the name of Eduardo Guzman who ran the Venezuela office. And this is like a few months later, I'm down in Venezuela with him. And, and by the way, another side note, I was there when Hugo Chavez tried to take over the first coup attempt 
uh, I think it was 91, 92, I was actually down there at the Sheridan Hotel. And you could hear the, uh, the, ca the, the cannons and, and the gunfire, right? Oh, but I'm from Chicago, so that was just music in the background to me. But the <laughs> next day I found out, you know, you know, we had to leave out the country quickly. But I remember Eduardo Guzman saying to me, hey, Victor, if I had better prices, I know I could hit my number in the region. To which I said, Eduardo, let me ask you a question. If the only way <laughs> up to hit that number is the you know, lower prices, why don't I fire you, close the office, the whole bit? And so it was always a funny story after that. Oh, that's a good one. So tell me, outside of corporate America, mm -hmm. um, you, you've, you left corporate America. Is that when you started your own business? Yeah, I had seen Zig Ziglar in 92, maybe yeah. something, 92, 93, somewhere in there. And I was like, oh, one day, one day, I want to be like that guy. So Zig Ziglar has always been my virtual mentor, yeah. uh, you know, because I would not met him. And so the dream was always to join, you know, to be a speaker. But I kept that in my back pocket because I was still doing the corporate thing, right? And, but along the way, I, I joined a group called Toastmasters. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. them. Yeah. And so, by the way, I highly recommend Toastmasters. Toastmasters is a speaking organization. And, you know, whether you want to be a speaker or just a great presenter or salesperson, you should go through the first 10 speeches of the Toastmasters course. So it's in your area. Look it up, toastmasters.org. And I started doing Toastmasters, getting good at speaking. And then, you know, fast forward my career, you know, I'm doing well in corporate America. Everything's going well, making a lot of money. And then May 9th, 2001, 3.48 PM to be exact, I, I make the call to the uh, chairman of the company. I was president of sales and marketing of a $420 million company. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. So I quit. Uh, if you want the full story and you're listening to this, if you go on YouTube and you type in Victor Antonio, The Motivator, the documentary, it's just Victor Antonio, The Motivator. It's a documentary I made about 10 years ago that journals all this stuff, right? And so sure enough, man, I decided I wanted to just do my own thing. It was almost like I wanted to break out of the corporate cage yeah. and I wanted to do my own thing. And so I started becoming a speaker. It was years later that I was invited to speak in Jackson, Mississippi and share the stage with... Zig Stigler. Yeah, so cool. dude, I, I was so high that day. Oh, I mean, cocaine or crack combined couldn't get me higher than that, man. So, so mm. you're, you said, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, <clears throat> you had, you had a, a vision of being a, an international yep. speaker. I mean, you wanted to share the stage with the biggest names. That's a tough revenue model mm -hmm. to, to, to start out. So yes, how did you how did you go from an unknown name to to where you are now? Well, take man, you're, steps. you're getting tough on me. You're getting tough yeah. on me, Kerry. I'm digging this, man. So what happened was, and again, this is in the movie, but it's always interesting to uh, tell the story. The, so I quit, right? And the vision I had in my head was I saw Zig Ziglar, and in my head, the only vision I had was me standing in in in, in this big auditorium you know, in front of, you know, a thousand or 2000 people. That was the vision I had in my head. It was a picture I can see vividly. That is the only time I think I've ever had a vision, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Right. But I had that picture in my head. And so the, I quit. And I remember May 9th, 2001, I quit. I had what I call a quiet discontent. A quiet discontent means something inside of you just builds up over time that you just can't avoid it nagging at you. So you got to go scratch that itch. And it was speaking. And so my first year, I mean, just to kind of give you a reference point, you know, Carrie, I, I was making my base salary with this company was 250,000 a year. That was just the base salary. 
-hmm. On top of that, you had commissions and, you know, a stock options in the actual company. So I left, I, when I quit, I lost all of that. In the first six months from June, because I left in May, so in June officially all the way to the end of the year, I made a whopping $17,000. That's one seven, my man. Not seven zero, one seven thousand dollars And that's when, if you're an entrepreneur, you know what I'm talking about. Man, that, that panic in your stomach hits you a little bit. Huh. You know, you're not making enough money. You didn't think, you're not growing as fast as you'd like to grow. And your bank account is going tick, tick, tick downward. And it was around that time, I remember seeing, uh, I, I seen the speaker's name is Randy. And so I said, you know what, let me go see this guy's giving a full day workshop. And so, and I know he was a successful speaker. He still is a successful speaker. And I remember, you know, during lunch, I made it a point to sit next to Randy. And I remember asking Randy, and this was a moment for me, Carrie. I remember asking Randy, this is after me whining like literally whining about how much money I was not making and how the market doesn't understand me and people don't appreciate my skill set, blah, blah, blah. You know, blaming everybody else. Yeah. And then Randy looked at me and says, Victor, let me ask you a question. Again, when somebody says, let me ask you a question, it ain't going to go well for you. And he goes, let me ask you a question. To which I said, what? He said, what business are you in? I thought that was an odd question. I just told you what business I was in. And I said, I'm a speaker. He goes, no. But he said, like, no, like rudely, like, no. And I said, okay, I'm a sales speaker. No. Okay, I'm a trainer. No. Sales trainer. No. Con sales consultant. No. He just kept, no, 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 no. And finally, you know, I didn't want to swear at the guy, but okay, you tell me. Apparently, you know more than I do. Tell me what business I'm in. And he said, Victor, you're in the marketing business first, everything else second. Hmm. And my immediate reaction was, screw you what the hell kind of answer is that? And that's a, that's a typical reaction when somebody holds up the mirror to your face and you don't like what you've just seen. Hmm. And it wasn't until I went home and, you know, I don't know if it was a day or two, a week, whatever it may have been. When, 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 that, when that thought, that meme in your head that he just put in there, you're in the marketing business first, hits bottom. And when it hit bottom, I said, man, I got to get better at marketing myself. And this is, again, so this is all building up to how do you begin to market yourself? So I started marketing myself and I started speaking in the college markets at the time. You know, that was a, you know, a, an avenue I wanted to pursue. So that's actually how I started just really kind of getting my act together, wrote my first book, started promoting myself using different marketing strategies at the time, got the website together and marketing, marketing, marketing. To this day, marketing is still my number one business first, everything else second. That is a great story and so true. I, I'm, a, I'm an accountant, by, so you're an engineer. I'm an accountant. I went and got my CPA and, and started my business in 05. And, uh, you know, I did not have that message, marketing. You're in the marketing business first and everything else is second. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people that are thinking about doing something bigger, they mm -hmm. really need to hear that message. They do. I, I think too often, um, I, I have a coaching program, right? So my, one of my students this morning, true story, he's worried about branding, you know, and that's part of marketing, right? And I said, okay, this is what branding is. Branding is a message repeated constantly ad nauseum. So people associate that message with you, right? They go, that's that guy. Yeah. And so, you know, he was talking about, you know, working on videos, 
working on this. You know, I want to work on my brochure. I want to work on, you know, just all these other little things. But I said, what are you doing to market yourself? What are you doing to market yourself? I'm, I'm not seeing anything. You got great collaterals, right? Nice book cover, nice little brochure. All these things are essential. But what are you doing to market? How are you getting on Google? How are you getting on the first page? How are you doing on Facebook or all the social media you know, outlets? How are you doing on there? What are you putting up there? And there was a lot of stammering going on. Uh, well, uh, yeah, well, I'm doing a little bit. Well, a little bit is not a plan. You know, I do it often. Well, often is not a plan. And it wasn't that I wanted to be mean to him, but I wanted to drive home the point that you can have the best product in the world. You can have the best service in the world. But if nobody knows you exist, it doesn't matter. And we live in a world today where, where all products have reached parity. By that, I mean it is rare to find a product that's different. Rare. And even if it is different, it's only going to be different for a very short period of time, a short window. If, you're, if you offer a service, well, guess what? Everybody's going to offer the same service or make the same promises. So your product's not different. Your service is not different. The only thing that's different is that people know who you are and want to do business with you. And that's marketing. Mm. So good. So when, when, for this, we could take the, uh, the person that you were coaching and continue down that path. But once you, if someone's got an idea, they're building on it, they, uh, they really need to market themselves better. How do you know when, cause, because when you try some things in marketing, the first rule is that it's going to fail and you just need to learn from that and try again. How do you know when it's time to put gas on the idea? I think you have to, it's, it's a great question. It's, it's the, it really, it's the essential question of marketing, right? Uh, what's that guy who made this statement? I forgot his name. Uh, God, it's going to come to me later. But he said, 50% of my marketing works, 50% doesn't. Problem is, I don't know which 50 it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, that type of thing. Yeah. I forgot his name. And so, you know, Wanamaker, I think is his name. But anyway, so when you start marketing, I've lost so much money, Gary. I mean, I, I've spent so much money on things that just haven't worked. And there's two ways of looking at that. Man, I just lost a lot of money. Or, well, that didn't work. Let's not do that again. You know what I mean? I and I hate to say it this way because I think people want a formula or some type of crystal ball. I look at it this way. Look at your business. Look at your business and what you offer. And then ask yourself, if you were buying that product or service, what medium, what marketing channels would you use? Let me use me as an example. I tried the mail outs. I tried the newsletters. You know, I tried a bunch of other things to market, but when I read that Gary Vaynerchuk book, that's when I think it really started taking off for me. When I started committing myself to more video, mm. everything else was kind of working. But when I started doing video, and by the way, if you're listening to this and you're thinking of doing video, keep in mind, you got to do at least a hundred. Mm. And I know that sounds like a big number, but it isn't. You can knock out a hundred in a year easy. Mm. And the first 50, nobody's going to really watch. And that's where most people stop. You know, they hit the zone of disappointment, like, well, I'm not getting the traffic, so therefore it doesn't work. No, sometimes besides consistency, there's persistence. You got to keep doing it. So I chose video for me, YouTube to be specific, because I knew that people wanted to see me speak. They wanted to see me on stage. They wanted to see my presentation and articulation. That's why you hire a speaker. So for, for any speaker who's listening, the ideal channel to market yourself on is video slash YouTube. YouTube is owned by Google. Google runs 91% of all searches in, in the U.S. Why not be there? 
Right. And, but I know other people who sell, you know, uh, consumer services. And so maybe their channel is going to be Facebook. Here's what I tell people. Try one channel. Go deep into one channel. If you, but you got to be sure it's your channel. So for me, I went deep. I went all in with YouTube. And I, and I gambled and I gambled correctly. But it was well measured. I knew everybody was moving towards video, Carrie. So, you know, I don't know if I've answered your question, but that's how I did it. No, it's great. I love it because you, you, you saw a channel that, that you thought was going to be the right channel for you. And, and, and not everybody is, is comfortable in video, but you were, and especially for speaking, you know, people need to see you. They need to, they need to see your presence. They need to feel your presence. Mm -hmm. And really, video is the best way to do that. How do you go... For somebody that's interested in video, how do you how do you do a hundred videos and not feel like you're repeating the same thing? Oh, you know what it is. This that's a great question. Uh, I get that question a lot. I said, Victor, you got twelve hundred videos plus on YouTube. How do you not run out of material? Here's what happens when you go in deep on a niche. In my case, sales slash motivation. Go in on a niche. All of a sudden, you start discovering all these nuances. Like there's so many nuances that it's like I still have more material to talk about. And I know that may be hard to believe, but 100 is easy. Uh, you know, by the way, now 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought that. Okay, so I'm with you if you're thinking, no way, Victor. I get it. But I'm telling you, if you're where I'm at now, you look back, I can do 100. Easy. Mm -hmm. There's so much content out there. I can, you know, if you just look at any subject you want to talk about and you start really digging into it, just really digging into it, then all of a sudden there's some nuances. I mean, hell, we can talk about how we're doing this podcast right now, right? Yeah. You and I. Let's talk about this podcast. And if I were to ask you, you know, uh, Carrie, give me two or three tools you're using for this podcast. Give me two or three tools. Uh, I'm using Zoom. Zoom. Um, I'm using um, this, this mic system that I've got here that someone set up for me. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, I'll, well, I'll, uh, we're very active on LinkedIn. And so when LinkedIn is our channel where we'll really distribute it and that's really an effective, I mean, those are, those are tools right now that right. I use and those are just the ones that, and that's not even the back end that my team does all the production side. Right. And then we get into the graphics that you use for marketing. Sure. How do you, what time should you post these? You know, how long should they be? You know, or what, you know, what structure seems to work best? What type of guests come on that are the best? By the way, when we look at microphones, there's different type of marketing. You got a cardioid, you got this type, you got that yeah. type. Hey, by the way, you don't have to buy this. You can buy that type. And then all of a sudden you can talk about that. You can talk about Zoom. You can talk about others like Skype. You can talk about all these different platforms and really dig into them. Or maybe you want to do live stream. What is live stream? Oh, let's go ahead and talk about live streaming. You can do your podcast. There's so many ways to do this yeah, podcast. Yeah, you can talk about, you know, if you're doing a visual, you talk about the lighting system. What type of lighting system should I use? Bulbs? Should I use LEDs? There's something else I should use. What's the right color temperature for these? You know, so forth and so on. And it's once you get into it and you decide to become a master in that domain, like for me, it's sales. Really, that combination of sales and motivation is where I live, right? And the more I, I research sales and motivation, why people do things or they don't do things, or what's the, how sales is changing. Uh, I don't know if you saw my recent book that I released last year, which is how artificial intelligence is changing the world of selling. It's called mm -hmm. Sales Ex Machina. Yeah. So I write a book on how AI is changing sales. That's a deep book. You know, I get into so many different aspects of selling there and how AI is being applied to sales. So there's how another topic. And within that topic, there was at least 
50 different subjects, if not more, that I could have delved into. So there's content to be created, but you have to marinate in it. Oh, Victor, that's it. such a great nugget. Here's why. There's so many out there, and I've been guilty of this myself, so many out there that have a fear of committing to a niche. Mm -hmm. and, and they have a fear that they'll lose out on an opportunity. You will. Yes. <laughs> you but, will. Yeah, of course you will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's admit that. But at the same time, what happens, you, you fail to see the upside, though, that when you become a, 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 a master of your domain, in other words, you own that domain, you know that domain, you get much more business in the long run. See, people always ask me, Victor, do you do anything on teamwork? No. Could I? Probably if I wanted to. Do you do anything on, you know, whether it's team building, customer service is another one. No, it's not what I do. <laughs> I just say, no, I could. I could develop content, but here's what I've learned. That when you start dividing yourself like that into trying to do everything, you start taking away from, obviously, your domain expertise, but then the stuff that you do produce is not that great. Mm. It's, it's at 70, 80%. It's passable. It's good, mm. but it's not great. And you want to achieve the level of greatness where people want to book you. And then, yeah, you're going to, short term, you're going to miss out on some deals. But here's the upside of focusing. When you become so good at what you do, the demand for your services go up. And I haven't made, I can't tell you how long it's been. I haven't made a cold call. All my demand is incoming. Why? Because when they want to know about sales and motivation, yeah, go to Victor. He'll, he, that's what he talks about. Yeah. When they think about sales and motivation, I'm typically one of the people that comes to mind. Why? Because I focus. So yeah, you will lose some business in the short run. But what you don't see is the, the, the complete upside of what will happen when you begin to become very good at a market and that expertise, that domain, and then people start recognizing your domain expertise and paying you. The analogy I like to use is if you went out today, maybe this has happened to you, Carrie. You bought a car at one time, for example. Let's say tonight you went out and bought a car. And then all of a sudden, tomorrow you get on the highway. What do you think you're going to see on the highway? All the cars that I'm just like the one I'm driving. Now, did they magically appear or were they always there? They were always there. Right. And so what happens is when you become a domain expert, you focus in on domain, you start seeing things that you didn't see before. And it is those subtleties those shades of grays, those slight angles in the terrain that people want and will pay for because you can see them when nobody else can. Because if you're focusing on everything, you can't see anything. Mm, and, and your target customer wants to pay for your 100%, not your 80%. That is correct. That's where you get the big dollars, man. That's what you get. <laughs> I love it. All That's right. What you get so Victor, what's your vision for the next 10 years? Dude, I am, you know, I get that question a lot and this is going to be the most embarrassing statement you're about to hear in this interview. I'm good where I'm at. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I'm, living, I'm living good, man. Could I be making more money? Yeah, probably. But do I want to be making more money? Yeah, probably. But I'm so good where I'm at. I, I'm in that zone that we strive for. And as Zig Ziglar used to say, you know, he always talked about an attitude of gratitude, right? Yeah. And I'm that guy. You're talking to that guy that I can say right now, I don't have any aspirations to go to the next level. I'm so good where I'm at. Now, that does not mean that I'm not going to create content and try to get better. But if I don't get better or don't move up, whatever that means, right? If you think about it, it's kind of an existential statement. Well, what does the next level mean? 
if you can't appreciate where you're at when things are going well, damn it, man, you're just not going to enjoy life. So I'm in a place where life is good, man. My kids are healthy. Uh, my wife and I just celebrated 30 years of marriage. Oh, wow. Went on 33 years together. Uh, you know, we live a beautiful life, man. And so people say, you know, where do you want to be in 10 years? Exactly where I am right now. Yeah. Well, you found your zone and you're excellent. How do people find you? How do they get in touch with you? What's the best spot for them to go to find information? VictorAntonio.com, man. It's that simple. VictorAntonio.com. I love it. Or I've got one question I like to uh, leave with, and that is, what is the one if you could give yourself a piece of advice, your 20-year-old self, what's the one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Be easy on yourself. Go easy on yourself. You know, sometimes when we're young, we're too hard on ourselves. You know, we castigate ourselves mentally too much without realizing that, you know, part of the mistakes we make, all the mistakes we make rather, you know, is part of the process. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I gave myself uh, the greatest gift at the age of 50. Gave myself the greatest gift. And so I wrote a book around it called The Greatest Gift. Uh, you know what I'll do? I'll send you, Carrie, an electronic version of it. Right. And then you could give it to your folks. How's that? Awesome. Is that cool? That is so awesome. Yes. And so the greatest gift I gave myself is the, you know, I won't even spoil the book, man. I, if I give it to you, I'll spoil the book. But I'm telling you right now that if you give yourself this gift and it's in the book and it's, it's, it's a very, by the way, it's a very, it's a fictional story. It's, it, it runs real well uh, and it flows nicely that you'll see what I mean when you listen back at this conversation, listen back at, you know, about uh, regarding this conversation that yeah. that's what he meant. That's the gift he gave himself. If you give yourself this gift, man, you will be happier than you ever known. You'll be happy. You'll feel, you'll feel like everything's lifted off your back as soon as you do it. Oh, I cannot wait to read it. This podcast, this interview has made me happy because you've got so much energy. And uh, each week, our goal, we have one goal, and that's to provide encouragement and confidence to those who have cage vision and want to find a way out. Victor, you have delivered. Thank you for being on the show. Kerry, thank you for having me. And as a reminder of my folks out there, remember, the cage isn't locked. All you got to do is step out of it. There we go. Hey, thanks, Victor. Thank you, Carrie. See ya.